So if you have not seen the film Wonder yet, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful, fantastic film. But I show you this clip today because it talks about the importance of the words we use. And most of us know, uh, growing up and even in our life today, that words are a very delicate matter. Words can have the ability to affirm us and lift us up, but they can also damage us. They can cause harm to us if we're not careful. Uh, Wonder is a story about Augie, and Augie uh, goes to school for the first time after 10 years of being homeschooled by his parents, and he has Treacher-Collins syndrome, and so no sooner does he arrive to school do the kids start recognizing he has different facial features than they do, and they begin to react, and they bully him, and they treat him uh, inappropriately. Today's scripture text has a lot to do with the power of words. Uh, Words, you see, they have a potency that can either build up or tear down. You know, words, as I mentioned, can really empower us and lift us up, but they also, if they're said in the wrong way, can really bring us down. And I think there's also no exception to that when we think of what it means to be marked by our faith. You know, when we are a child of God, there are some who might see and look at us differently. There are people who might say things to us based on what they may or may not know about people of faith. When I was on UVA, uh, when I was at UVA, I'll never forget, every Ash Wednesday was always an uncomfortable experience for me and my friends because we would go to a morning worship service for Ash Wednesday, and so we'd go to class and have ashes on our forehead. Um, And beyond stairs, there were times where somebody would say, you have a smudge on your forehead, and and that was really hard to hear because, you know, this was a piece of who we were, and, and really, you know, those words brought me down. Those words brought us down. And words in our story today, as we continue this series, I didn't learn that in Sunday school, the the topic of the story has a lot to do with the words we use, the way we react to those words, and the way we engage with those words. Our scripture has a lot to say about the limits of the human tongue, and the book of James is no exception. This is what James has to say. James says, you must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Friends, what if we all took a giant step back and thought carefully before we spoke a single word to somebody else. Instead of reacting to what may be perceived as a difference, what if we chose and thoughtfully chose our words in a way that reflected the love that God has for you and for me? What if we thought more about those words? Today's story finds us in the world of the prophet Elisha, not to be confused with the prophet Elijah, But Elisha was the one who was appointed to be God's prophet in the footsteps of Elijah. Not to try and be confusing, but that's how it worked out. Uh, But Elisha, you see, uh, was set apart by God to be the next prophet in line uh, 
to, to speak on behalf of God. Prophets were sort of the spokespersons that were set apart to speak God's truth into the world around them. And so we learn that Elijah has gone out to meet this Elijah character in his hometown, and we get a small glimpse into this guy's life. And here's what we learn. So Elijah set out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. There were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him, threw his mantle over him. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Then Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? He returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them. Using the equipment from the oxen, he boiled their flesh and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. So we know a few things about Elisha at this point. So one of the things is that Elisha's family has close ties to the land. They're a people of the land. That is their way of life. But we also know that Elisha has been called to speak for God in a time where there are many, many, many kings throughout Scripture. And not all of them are good kings. There are bad kings. There are flawed kings. There are kings involved in scandals and plot intrigue and battles and everything in between. And this ordinary guy from this plowing family has been called by God to speak truth into this reality to speak truth into the kingdom of Israel. But the thing I want us to pay particular attention to in this moment is that Elisha has been longing after something bigger than he is. The way he almost forgets to kiss his parents goodbye because he is so prepared and ready to go and follow in Elijah's footsteps. And if you know anything about Elijah, Elijah was one of the most celebrated prophets in Israel's history. Elijah was a miracle worker. Elijah was a healer. Elijah met the people where they were. And now it was time for Elisha to follow suit, for Elisha to take on not just the literal mantle of his predecessor, but the figurative one as well. But no sooner does Elisha make this commitment, he quickly realizes that there's more to life than meets the eye when it comes to being called by God. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep silent. So no sooner uh, does this transpire, does Elisha quickly realize that he's got a lot of work to do to catch up. And this group of prophets, this sort of cohort of people, remind him as if he doesn't already know that your master is about to depart from you. What are you going to do next? And Elisha says, stay silent. I know. Don't remind me. Well, then they ask him again, if you read further along in the story. They ask him and remind him of that same reality, and he responds the exact same way. And what happens next in a nutshell is an image many of us might be familiar with from Sunday school or growing up in the church where Elijah all of a sudden parts the Jordan and is taken up 
in a chariot of flames and fire before Elisha's very eyes. But one detail we might overlook is a thing that Elisha asks of Elijah. He says, Elisha, can I have a double portion of your spirit? And we might be wondering, what does that mean? Well, what happened a lot in Israelites' time was that whenever a parent was preparing to depart or a parent was passing away, the first son in each family would get double the inheritance that was given. And in many ways, this very question that Elisha asks reflects the intimacy that the two of them had. It was almost a father-son-like relationship. Elijah was Elisha's mentor. He was not prepared to follow in his footsteps to the point where he almost is asking for everything Elijah had that he doesn't. Everything Elijah did that made him successful. And so we might look at this story and think a lot about the way it has to do with calling. You know, Elisha is responding to a call from God, and he's quickly realizing that this call is a time of uncertainty, a new season in the life of the individual. You know, how many of you, you know, think about a time where you've had to step down from something in ministry. Maybe you were leading a small group, or maybe you were leading something in the life of the church, and you felt that you had reached a point where it was time to take a step back in leadership. Or maybe you witnessed that in somebody else. During that time of change, there's often a lot of grief. There's a lot of vulnerability. And so we can imagine that Elisha is terrified of filling this void that has been left ahead of him. How can I possibly live up to what Elijah did ahead of me? I don't have those gifts. I don't have those skills. But what we do, friends, is we stand on this promise that our call from God is not a mere replication of somebody else's experience of God. I like to call this the youth group syndrome. And the reason being is this. There are times in youth group, and maybe you experienced this, where it almost was made apparent that God only shows up in a clear way if you've gone through some deep, dark, challenging, hard time. And then those of us who may not have been through that experience are wondering, well, then am I really fit for this? I haven't experienced that. But can God still call me? Can God still use me at such a time as this with the gifts that I've been given by God? Do I have to go through the same experience that they did? What happens is there's this temptation to want to replicate the story of somebody else with God and not to live into the story we have individually with God. And what happens is in that moment, we project another's gifts onto our own calling. And what happens is we begin to experience a God of if onlys. If only I had the ability to perform healings like Elijah did. If only I had the skills to be a great leader. Do you remember when Moses was called by God to lead the people out of Israel? The first thing he said to God was, well, God, how are you going to do it through me? Because I sure can't speak well. But what does God do? God uses him in spite of his hesitation, in spite of his assumption that a good speaker is what's necessary to do the work of God. 
each of us is uniquely called. And so how can we live into that call story that God has placed in our hearts without letting the gifts of another impact that journey? So this story we are about to hear, this bizarre story, the one you've been waiting for that fits into our series, has to do with the ways that Elisha begins to live and grow into his call. And he seems to be starting out on the right foot. There's this beautiful miracle story where he goes to a community and they have a bad water source. And he brings wholeness and wholesomeness to this water so that it becomes a source of life and nourishment again. But then these next few verses completely shift the story. And so I invite you to hear these with me. Elisha went up from there to Bethel And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, bald head. Go away, bald head. When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel and then returned to Samaria. Word of God for the people of God, right? So, so this guy who ends up having a ministry that's very much celebrated, he performs many incredible feats if you continue to read into the life of his ministry, but then it's all of a sudden disrupted by something you'd see in like a, a B-rated horror movie, right? And, and we have to figure out, okay, why is this in our scripture? What does this say to us? You know, we, we may wonder, you know, was this coincidence that these bears happened to be nearby? Were the kids in the wrong place at the wrong time? Did Elisha go overboard? Did God ordain these bears to come out at this moment? And, and these are just some of many questions that people who've been studying this scripture and, and wrestling with it have come up with. One of the most common interpretations of this story has to do with where it takes place. So Bethel, in the time of Israel, was one of two places where King Jeroboam had set up sites for idol worship. So there were these two places, Bethel and the other was Dan, and these were places where idols had been erected for the people to worship. And so one interpretation of this story is that Elisha is traveling to Bethel to essentially speak out against these false worshipers. And that this group of young men are are people representing that community, these people who are not worshiping the one true God. So that's one story that shows up quite a bit as how people have interpreted this passage. But I want us to think about two other possibilities that we could potentially walk away with from today. And the first goes back to what I had to say about calling. Elisha is responding to a call, as many of us respond to a call. And I don't know about you, but if I was made fun of for onset baldness, I probably would struggle with how to react to, right? You know, it's embarrassing, or it's, it's something where we're not, you know, we're fearful with how to engage with that. And we can make the case in this story that, you know, these are young boys, boys will be boys, But I think there's something deeper if we look closely. You know, Elisha was God's anointed. Elisha was set apart by God to do this work. The last thing these boys wanted to hear was something new from God. 
these people, if they were truly worshiping false idols, the last thing they wanted is somebody to come in and rain on their parade and tell them what God has to say about it. But what if these young men weren't just attacking Elisha's physical appearance, but what if they were challenging his role as a spokesperson for God? And many of us encounter that in our own lives as well. When people find out what we profess, what we believe, there may often be a tension at work, right? Because embracing a call from God doesn't necessarily jive well with a culture that has tainted our understanding of God. You've heard it. It's out there. A lot of times when people think about Christians, what do they say about us? We're overly what? Judgmental, right? But often they get that from a select few who decide that they are speaking from a place of faith, but more often than not, it's not capturing the heart of who we truly are. And what's happened is we become sort of inconsequential, you know, we, we become victims not by our own doing because of the words or the actions of a select few who, who claim the faith as their own. God was not somebody that these idol worshipers wanted to engage with. And prophets, if you read throughout the scriptures, are not the most welcome guests whenever they are in ministry. I think of prophets who often end up suffering as a result of their willingness to follow God. The prophet Jeremiah at one point finds himself thrown in a pit, a cistern at the bottom of a pit. Isaiah finds himself walking the streets naked and barefoot for several years. Jonah ends up in the belly of a fish for disobeying, for straying. And we know that Jesus himself was not even welcome in his hometown for the things he was saying. Prophets don't have it made, friends. Prophets do a hard work because they are often speaking out against the state of things, against the status quo. And if we go with the view that Bethel was this place of idol worship, Elisha was going to speak truth into a place that had strayed away from God. But it's hard to believe that of all things, a calling, like Elisha's calling, was something that could be challenged. But the reality is many who are called today in the life of faith and the life of the church still face those resisting powers when they respond to a call from God. Unfortunately, I have colleagues in ministry uh, when they respond to a call and yet then they are slighted because of things like their singleness, their weight, their physical health, their uh, unwillingness to abide by archaic gender roles. And then they get resistance from those who challenge that call. People push back against them. Friends, this story about Elisha isn't the first time someone's call to follow God is challenged. And we know that a call is a lifelong journey that each of us is on, right? It's this dynamic thing that God is doing, that God is working through in our hearts and in our lives and I want to suggest to you that a call is God's pursuit of hearts. It's God's pursuit of our hearts to further the kingdom. How is God working and stirring up in your heart to desire to live out the gospel life? 
We don't sign up for a call because it gives us a reputation or it gives us benefits or it, it gives us stability. We, we are worked in, our hearts are worked on by God when it comes to this call. But then there's another way of looking at this story that I want us to think about. You know, the one I just shared seems to give more sympathy to Elisha and this nature of call. But what does this story tell us about God? That's a whole nother ball game we have to think about. We have to make something of these bears, right? These two female bears that burst out of the woods and attack these kids, right? Well, one thing is for certain, with power or authority comes the fear of how we can manipulate it to our advantage, right? What do I mean by that? There's almost this correlation that when Elisha invokes the name of the Lord in this curse, these bears come out and attack. So it's almost as if the writer of 2 Kings wants us to see some sort of relationship between the two. But the question, I don't know about you, but the one I wrestle with is, how can such violence parallel with a God that we know to be loving, a God we know to be just, right? How do we reconcile those two things together in this story? What do we do with these bears? Does Elisha go overboard? Does Elisha kind of uh, take a petty matter and make it something more than it needs to be? Many biblical scholars classify this story as one of the criteria of embarrassment. And what that essentially means is that when stories like this one show up in our scriptures that would still probably embarrass the church today if they were preached on, then they're probably more truthful because why would they show up in our scriptures in the first place? Now, whether you look at that at face value or not, there's something to be said about the understanding of God we have in this passage. How much of this portrait of God is what Elisha is experiencing instead of God, God's self? So sometimes there is a tendency where an overly bitter person can paint a narrow picture of God. Sometimes our understanding of God is more influenced by our experience of God than it is actually God at work. And we might look at this story more allegorically and say, is this really a story about God ensuring that the people are worshiping the one true God Nothing more, nothing else. Is that what this story is about? That God is showing us that the importance of worshiping the one true God is at the heart of what it means to live into that call and to show others about that. And so I think we can walk away from this story with three things to wrestle with today. The first is this, that a call from God is not intended for our personal benefit. And I alluded to that earlier, but Elisha quickly realizes, no sooner has he started his ministry, that this way of life is not peachy and quaint. A call from God will take calculated risks. A call will invite us to do things that you and I wouldn't necessarily have chosen to do if it weren't for God's work in our lives. And so we walk this journey of faith, trusting that God can work in and through us in our lifetime. The second is this. A story like this is an opportunity to trust in a just God without carrying out the justice ourselves. 
You know, we are people who are often quick to speak and quick to use words and retaliate. As we talked about with the clip from Wonder, we're often quick to react. But what if we allowed God to be God and allowed God's just and righteousness carry through and live through us without reacting or going overboard? And the last is this, that human words can hinder reconciliation. And what I mean by that is this. Even though what those kids said to Elisha was offensive, there's a point where Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek could have changed this story altogether. What if this had been an opportunity to talk about what it means to worship God without the harsh words, without the assumptions? What if this was a moment where God said, I am longing to reconcile you with you so that we can fulfill my hopes, my calls on each of your lives? What if the story played out that way? Instead of looking at the story as you mess with God, you get the bears. As you honor God and you reflect God in your life, then there's possibility for growth and transformation. Let us pray. Most holy God, we thank you for this opportunity, this call that you've instilled in each of our hearts and in our lives. May we be so bold to live that out in our day-to-day -day lives, being your hands and feet in this world, showing others what it looks like to worship you. May our words be your words and not the ones that come from those places of anger or frustration. Instead of seeking retaliation, may we engage in dialogue and holy conversation, knowing that you are at the center of our dialogue, knowing that you are at the heart of who we are called to be. God, we love you. We thank you for the privilege we have to worship you. And it's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray all these things. And all of God's people said, amen and amen.